Welcome to the First Mass Podcast. This week, Pastor Ryan shares from 1 Timothy chapter 5 with the title, Caring Within the Family. We're continuing this series on legacy and Paul's message to Timothy. Let's listen. Grab this chair. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible or your phone and turn to 5 today. And uh, as Paul's not here, Pastor Paul's not here, uh, I will announce for him that uh, we have a prayer on Thursday mornings on Zoom. If you would like to join Pastor Paul and, and others who are uh, having prayer at that time, you can uh, text right there on the screen prayers to that phone number, and then you will get a link sent to you uh, about five minutes before six. Uh, that you can join the Zoom and join prayer. You don't have to be on camera at all. You can have your camera blacked out and just listen to uh, the guide of, of prayer and scripture being read. Or you can join in and be on the camera. And if, I will tell you from experience that if you do activate your camera, you'll probably be called on by Pastor Paul to read scripture or uh, do different things like that. So that's just a heads up for you. But it is an amazing time just to spend about 20 to 30 minutes uh, in prayer for the church, for our world, for our community, for our government, uh, for ourselves and our church family. So I invite you to that. Uh, we're continuing on in the series uh, with First uh, Timothy. Uh, and just to remind you, or if, you, if you're just here for the first time today, uh, we're in chapter 5 of a six-chapter book. A letter to Timothy from the Apostle Paul, uh, and uh, just reminders about some of the background and the context that we're dealing with. Uh, Timothy is Paul's disciple, uh, but we, we uncovered right uh, at the very beginning of chapter one that he's also much more than that. He is like a son to Paul, a true son, uh, and, and he uses the words in that uh, first chapter that he is a legitimate son of his, that he would claim him as his own. Uh, so he is a disciple, the kind of the heir apparent of, of the ministry in the area of Ephesus, and then and later in other areas as well. Uh, and he is the authority that Paul has left in the Ephesus region for the, the church there. And Paul is uh, later in life. He's thinking about legacy. He has uh, been mentoring Timothy for a while. And he's writing these letters not only to address issues that have arisen within the church in Ephesus, uh, we've uncovered some of those things and, and talked about specific people, places, times, context. But he's also writing to Timothy, passing down uh, wisdom to him about how he will lead and how he ought to lead, how he ought to uh, present himself uh, to the church and the community around him, uh, and uh, some just last kind of teachings as Paul is mentoring and saying, uh, this legacy of faith and building the church and, and helping people to know who Jesus is, I can't keep doing it forever. I'm going to pass it down into somebody. And there's multiple people, and Timothy is, is a major one of those. So chapter 1, we talked about the truth. Uh, we talked about law, some warnings of uh, false teaching that were going on in the church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, uh, we talked about prayer and worship and the roles that men and women have in that area and answering some specific things that we, we kind of conclude or deduce that were obvious uh, issues being sent to Paul, asking for advice, Paul responding back about that. Uh, chapter 3, the roles of leaders and, and elders and deacons in the church, uh, their responsibilities, who they ought to be in order to be in those roles. Chapter 4, uh, more warnings of 
false teachers, uh, and then a, a call to get into training, uh, spiritual training, not just physical training, but spiritual training. Uh, and then a personal call to Timothy about training himself, about recognizing himself as a, as a leader and an authority, and not to have anyone look down on him because he's young, uh, but to take on the role that God has anointed him for, that it was prophesied over him, that was prayed over him when he was made a leader in the church. So as we move into chapter 5, Paul is continuing his teaching with Timothy. And, and in chapter 5, kind of the topic of care within the family, uh, we're moving away from some controversial things, you know, that we have talked about over the past few weeks, and moving more towards like a, a subject of, uh, of care within the community, how we have to treat each other, and then one group in specific that we're going to talk about today, those of uh, widows. Uh, we're talking about uh, the care within the, the family. We could say community, but really what Paul is talking about is family. The care that should be offered not just to our, our immediate family or our extended family, you know, our immediate family, our, our own children, parents, uh, siblings, all that, but also our extended family, uh, aunts, uncles, grandparents, all those things, but then our extended, extended family, our church, which ought to be just as, uh, just as important as we take this journey. So we're going to dig into the first part of the chapter. Uh, so if you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 1, we're going to read to verse 8 right now. And I'm reading out of the NLT this morning. I just invite you to follow along. It'll be on the screen. Uh, and if you have your own translation there, you can follow along as well. So starting at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Uh, Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother. And treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Some harsh words there at the end, right? Such people who don't take care of their own family are worse than unbelievers. So as we look at this and begin to kind of unwrap this, um, I was instantly drawn to a story, a family in one of my previous churches, I was introduced uh, and quickly became acquainted with a couple who had one of the most amazing uh, family stories I've ever, ever heard. They had known each other in high school and, uh, and were acquaintances and friends. You know, they, they were in the same class in high school. And as high school ended, they kind of went their separate ways, uh, never having dated or anything, they knew, knowing of each other. Uh, they got married to their spouses. They had kids. They began life and a journey. Uh, as sometimes happens, uh, life throws curbs at us, and for varying reasons between the two of them, uh, their marriages uh, fell apart. Their spouses, they got divorced, both of them, and uh, spent some time just caring for their kids. Uh, the husband had uh, four boys, and the wife had three boys and a girl, and uh, 
they both each had custody of their kids, full-time custody, okay? And eventually, they still lived in the same town that they grew up in and went to high school in, and eventually, they kind of reconnected, and they decided, you know, we've been friends for a while, and then before you know, uh, sparks flew, and they said, maybe we, maybe we ought to spend some more time together, and, and then after a while, that turned into, maybe we ought to get married, and so they decided to get married, and it was Brady Bunch plus two. If you ever uh, watched Brady Bunch, they had three and three, but these had four and four. So they had uh, seven boys now and one girl. The girl was the youngest, and the rest were all boys. And uh, some were in high school when they got married, all the way down to middle school. Uh, And uh, as they put their family together, as you could probably guess, um, and a family like that, when you you have a, a blended family come together, there's lots and lots of opportunities to discover tensions and difficulties. There's lots and lots of opportunities if you're a teen to discover the buttons you can push on the new siblings uh, to make them behave in ways that would get them in trouble. Uh, There's just all sorts of fun that can happen. But there's also lots and lots of opportunities for joy and happiness and an amazing story. And that's what this family did. Sure, they had their tensions and they had difficulties as they begin to blend this family together, but they have some amazing stories. And I won't tell you all of them or any of them, but they have some amazing stories. This, This family that took two very diverse backgrounds, put them together, and just blended them together. Now, the success of their story, they're still married. Their kids are now all grown and married and have grandkids, uh, or kids of their own, which are grandkids to this couple. Um, been happily married. They're doing great. And all of it, the blending uh, all the way till today, is because they will profess they had Jesus at the center of their marriage. It didn't come without difficulties. But regular family dynamics probably uh, provide countless opportunities for tensions and difficulties. You just think about the family that you are a part of right now, the immediate family, and whether you're part of a blended family that's kind of like the story that I have told you, or your, your family's just still get the same as it has always been. Same parents, grandparents, siblings, all of that. You, you all know there's opportunities galore for tension, for difficulties, but there's also opportunities galore for Uh, joy and happiness, amazing stories of faith, and amazing growth. The early church uh, did its best to live like a big extended family. Do you agree with me? You better, because that's what we're supposed to do right now anyway. The early church did its best to live as a big extended family, and uh, they had tensions. If you can imagine, uh, once the day of Pentecost had happened, and the church went out into the countries that were represented on that day and began to grow and begin to connect with each other and begin to bring all these diverse backgrounds in together and have the commonality of Jesus as Messiah, it had growing pains. But it did its best to live as a big extended family. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 47, kind of a famous three verses that we talk about a lot within the church. It says, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple every day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It sounds kind of like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Um, 
We, we don't have anything like that right now in our world where a community of believers meets every single day together, where a community of believers sells things because somebody needs uh, something, and, and the pool of all the resources within the community are there to meet the needs of all the community. I want to challenge us today as we kind of talk about the treatment of care within the church and with the specific group of widows to kind of think about this church in Acts, that this was not a social experiment that started and ended very quickly. The church, uh, before this, was formed. Buildings at where they met. The church met for a long time, hundreds of years, like Acts chapter 2 was described. They met every day. They went to church every day. They shared meals together every day. And it was a diverse, extended family, uh, all different kinds of backgrounds. And there was lots of opportunity for tension and difficulties, but there's also lots of, lots of opportunity for great joy, great amazing comfort within the church, and great uh, response to need. It wasn't an experiment that died quickly. Uh, throughout Paul's writings, we find a command to care for one another. And for Paul, it, it isn't just about saying nice things and telling people that you will pray for them and wishing them a great day. It's in the actions that we take that genuinely uh, show our care for others, as if they were our actual parents, if they were our actual brothers and sisters, if they were our actual children. In the world at this time, <clears throat> at the time that Paul's writing this, there was no state-organized care for those with, uh, with no one to look after them. Uh, there was no welfare system. Uh, there was no social security. No, none of these uh, systems that care for people that kind of slipped through the cracks. Uh, it, it, and for people that had no means of supporting themselves, uh, like widows, at this time, women whose husbands died after uh, that process, those ladies faced total poverty if they had no family to take care of them. If they had family to take care of them, we read just a second ago, man, Paul's very clear that family ought to be taking care of them. We ought to, we ought to have them living with us, providing for their needs and all those things. But if not, the church should take care of them. At that time, if, if you were a woman whose husband had passed away and you had no kids or grandkids, uh, you were at a, a point of complete destitution. I mean, you couldn't own anything. You couldn't earn anything. It, it was a place where that woman needed to be cared for. But it's not the only way that that destitution or poverty would have come about. Uh, if you were a professing Christian, uh, at that time, often families, especially in this, this region of Ephesus, uh, families would shun you if they did not agree with that religion, if they were part of a different religion or no religion at all. Uh, they would shun you, and you would become dead to them if you were part of the Christian faith. So even if you did have family, sometimes they wouldn't take care of you. Uh, they would not even consider you being alive anymore. So in this process of, of widowing, sometimes it's just that, that spouse that has passed a, away, but sometimes also it is uh, that an entire family would die to you or call you dead. This is why this section of verses and, uh, and the one that follows that we're going to read in just a minute, Paul goes into a great detail about, about the family, how the family should support family members and specifically this group of widowed people. The reason Paul's concerned about widows is directly and intimately related to his view of God and the church. 
The church is the renewed family of God. Would you agree? The church is the renewed family of God. Would you agree? Yeah. It, it, we are supposed to be the model of how things work, right? Uh, I said last week as Paul and I were preaching together that uh, the church is plan A for God's uh, plan to get the gospel message out to the entire world and he doesn't need a plan B. He has the church. We just need to be the church. Amen? Uh, this is why this is important to him. The church is the renewed family of God and it's family life, that renewed family of God, that community that is reflecting God's grace and love and mercy and care. That family should be reflecting the life that God provides for us. If we are the family of God, then we must love and care for the family the way that God does. It's kind of a simple way of thinking about it. I think as, as we have read this paragraph, this first part, um, there, are three, there are three kind of themes or words that I would use behind the scenes uh, of everything that's kind of going on in here. And uh, they're within all of our family dynamics, whether it's the church family or our internal family, our immediate family, uh, or maybe our, a corporate family, a, a place of business that you work for. And uh, those words are power, sex, and money. They're, they're kind of behind everything, right, in, in our world today. So I, I want to start with just briefly talking about power. Uh, I think as Paul is talking to Timothy, how he ought to engage and treat the older men in his church, those who are trusted with power and responsibility in the church need to learn how to use it with gentleness and wisdom. To not use that place of power and responsibility as an elevated position to teach from, but as a platform on equal ground and footing. There are times when a pastor needs to tell someone that their thinking or behavior is out of line. And I will tell you, it's probably, <clears throat> as a pastor, one of the most uncomfortable conversations to have with a congregant. But as a leader in a church, no matter whether you're a pastor, you're a small group leader or a board member, these situations happen where we need to talk to somebody in the church about behavior or, or something that has been said or done that is out of line. And Paul is saying here, we ought to do it out of gentleness and wisdom. We ought to treat that person not as an enemy or someone that needs to be forced into a proper way of thinking, but rather as a father if they're older than we are. Rather, as a mother, if they're older than we are, and they're a, a female. As a brother or a sister, if we're on kind of equal footing of age and, and responsibility. There are times uh, when these discussions have to happen, and it's always, and has been, and always will be a difficult discussion to have, especially in our day and age, when we take into account all the, the words that get misunderstood or offend or all of it the intentions that we assume each other has. When, uh, when we get into this, those in power and authority are often tempted to inform or teach from a great height of righteousness looking down on those being corrected and those that, that need more information. But this has to be resisted. It just has to be. Paul is giving good advice to Timothy on how the family should treat each other. He states in these early verses, think of how you would go to your own father and tell them that something in their life needed to change. I think of my own father uh, having had a stroke about five years ago. 
and uh, the stroke did a lot of damage to his brain. And it took him a long time to recover. And he still has issues with the right side of his body. He can't feel much in his hand or foot. And he still has to use a cane to walk for steadiness. But that giving up driving thing is really hard. It's the independence. And the discussion that my brother, my sister, and I had to have with my father after an accident that he had. Because he couldn't quite get to the brake pedal in time or feel it when he got to it. Getting into those conversations and, and approaching them, I could just say, Dad, we're taking the keys away from you because you're no longer fit to drive. Or I could do it out of respect and say, I think we need to think about this. We need to talk about it. We need, we need to hear from you what you think about your situation right now about your capability, whether you think you can drive or not. And let's try to ha come to an agreement about this. We know it's going to happen down the road. It, we're not just telling you right now, today, we're taking the keys away, but we just want to talk with you about it. We want to get explore it together, and we want to come to something that all of us can agree on. And I'll tell you, even though it was difficult, it's, it went a lot better than we thought it would when we approached with respect. That's how to approach older men in the church family as if they're our own father. If it is a man then it's, uh, that's younger or the same age, and it's if you're, you're speaking with a brother. And sometimes we would say, man, those family dynamics that are difficult, that provide tension and difficulty, sometimes uh, our sibling rivalries get in the way, and yet they're still our brother. And we still need to figure out a way to make that relationship whole again. We still need to figure out a way to keep it mended, to keep it moving forward. So there's that kind of power struggle. And it's just an assumption as we read through this, why is Paul talking about this? Uh, maybe there's a question that was asked and he's responding, but I could think in the church that it could be about power. So then we kind of move to the sex side of things. When it's a woman speaking to a man, older like a father, uh, uh, a woman speaking to a, a young man, younger like a brother or a child, a son, or a man speaking to a woman, older like a mother, and younger like a sister or a daughter. I want you to think about that for a moment. Today in the church, we have just as many issues about divorce, adultery, and, uh, and lots of other issues. Uh, we have just as many in the churches or outside the church. We're, we're a mirror of what's going on in society today. And it, it's not alarming to me. It's not like we should be all that much better. We are uh, a bunch of sinners saved by grace. Amen? We are, we're a reflection of what goes on in the world around. But then there comes in that if we are the family of God, our, in, our structure and how we treat one another ought to be moving towards the better, ought to be growing in respect, ought to be changing and beginning to look a little different than it does to the outside world. Family members within this body ought to treat each other, as Paul states, with all purity. He, he mentions it as uh, with younger women that we would uh, treat them like a sister. With all purity, we would treat them like a sister. But I think in this day and age, with a lot of the things that are going on in our culture around us, we ought to just take that and say, I would treat 
an older woman, a younger woman, a younger man, an older man. I'm treating everybody in the church with all purity so that none of my uh, motivations are ever questioned, that my communication is clear, that we would never have to question about what was going on in the church between one man and one woman. Okay? So we kind of look at it this way, and, and we say Paul understands that family comes with intimacy. All right? When we are together as a family, I, I don't know about any of your families, my family, uh, with my two teenagers, uh, we have an intimacy that we can talk about and we do talk about anything. And there's no you know, punishment or uh, surprise or shock or anything. We just have been that way the entire time our kids were growing up. We have an intimacy. We don't talk about that way with everybody else. But Why? especially within the church, to have an intimacy where we can talk about the things that are struggles in our church, the things that are struggles with our individual lives, to be able to bring them up and seek support from one another, an intimacy. Paul knows that with family, there comes this intimacy, and with family members, and especially leaders like Timothy, we have to protect all of our relationships with the respect and the, pu- all, and the purity that we uh, should choose to use. And the last of the three is money. The problem of how to help widows includes the problem of who is a widow and who is responsible for them. And in that responsibility, who's taking care of them? And in that care, who's footing the bill? Amen? Because we all know when we care for someone, it costs. And sometimes it's money and sometimes it's emotions and sometimes it's physical things, you know. But it always costs. The problem of how to help these widows includes the problem of who is a widow and who's responsible for them. If a widow, sorry, I just scrolled away from my words here. If a widow has immediate family and that family are all Christians, that's the quantifier. Because as I said before, sometimes if that family wasn't Christians, they would have that uh, widow be dead to them. If the family were all Christians, then Paul makes it very clear that that immediate family needs to take care of the widow. It would not be good for the widow to take money from the church if their family is already supporting them. Uh, I mean, because that's going to cause issues. We're, we're kind of, I was used the phrase double dipping. You know, we're going to get help from here and help from here, and we're going to have an amazing life. And maybe this, this here doesn't know about this here. And, uh, and then what happens when they do find out? The family ought to take care of their own. But if the one who is widowed has no one to care for or support them, then it is the family known as the church who must gather around and care for them in all ways. And Paul does mean always. So we continue with uh, the second half of this passage, just digging more into the widows. Starting at verse 9, it says this, Going on to verse 16. A widow who is put on the list of support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to, go, uh, ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower the devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. 
then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. So again, Paul has some pretty harsh words for uh, some of the audience of this reading. And, And we can't help but deduce that he's answering questions that have been asked him. Uh, of a specific situation or specific people that are in this church that are going to be reading this letter after Timothy reads it, you know? So as we read this, reflect on it for our remaining few moments. It's interesting to think that Paul, of all people, would put restrictions and guidelines such as age or whether a a widow should remarry or not uh, and whether that uh, widow had done enough or was good enough to receive support from the church. Uh, As I read over that over and over this week, I'm like, but we're the church. We're supposed to like, you know, without question, we're supposed to support. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to uh, comfort. We're supposed to provide like God provides for us. But then being a pastor and being a lead pastor of two churches previous to coming here, I know full well that the church has very limited resources. And oftentimes it falls on the pastor of who gets what the pastor to make the decision. Now, a good pastor will have a committee of people, either on a board or a financial committee or whatever, that it's not that pastor who has to make that decision because it should never just be one person. But oftentimes it does come down to a split decision in in a quick moment about whether a person should get money or food or clothing or whatever. Because the church does have a finite amount of resources to offer, and we want to make sure we get them to the places where they need to be. So as we, as we look at this and dig in, as we combine these two sections on helping widows, I, I, I kind of see three issues that Paul and Timothy might have been dealing with, just kind of reading between the lines and looking at, at this passage that the early church must have been facing. So first, Paul insists on verse, in verses 9 and 10 that widows receiving uh, support from the church must be above a certain age and must have shown a lifetime of family and community service. So we pause and we think, uh, what would happen without these guidelines? If we didn't say it's for specific uh, widows who are age 60 or older and who have fulfilled these requirements of raising great children and providing community support and doing all these things, just living this life of service uh, and obedience to God, what would happen if we didn't have any guidelines? We would probably just, all the resources go out the window pretty quick. And if we were supporting as many as we possibly could, man, there might be widows coming from faraway places because they heard of a church that was uh, completely and utterly supporting widows of any kind, shape, or form, whether they were Christian or not. So Paul is kind of placing some some hard guidelines here uh, for where the support, the money that they have, the resources that they have, the belongings, the things that the church has pulled together, what they could afford. 
okay? And we don't know whether he knows how many widows are being uh, cared for in this church right now or not, and he's specifically addressing this and saying, so within your frame of reference, uh, for the people that we're talking about, they need to be over 60, they need to have done all these things. We, we just don't know. But we can kind of maybe deduce, maybe that was one of the issues. It, it wasn't a means of Paul canceling the generosity of the church. Rather, it was a means of focusing more intently on who the family could support with the limited resources that they had. And Paul giving guidelines to Timothy, here's a way that you could do it and do it well. Fall, with, fall within these guidelines. The, the second problem I see uh, maybe that is going on in there when Paul states that those who can be supported by other means should make that their first priority. I think he's already insisted in the first section, and, and I've said it multiple times, that a widow's own relative should be the very first line of support. But now in verse 11 through 13, he's warning that supporting widows who are too young can lead to bad situations, bad habits, causing discontent. Uh, he mentions gossip. He mentions laziness. He mentions uh, these women, if they're too young, uh, to quote one of my favorite VeggieTale cartoons. They're living a life of ease. And as I said before, there's no social security, there's no welfare system, there's no state-run institution that's providing free uh, support. So it's the church. And clearly Paul sees that being a widow supported by the church means that the widow is committing to make the church their primary family. I'm going to say that again. I think what Paul is really saying kind of behind the scenes, in between the lines, is that being a widow supported by the church means that the widow is committing to make the church their primary family. That receiving that support, they're going to become the matriarch of the church. They're going to become the grandma to every kid in that church. They're going to become the mom to every grown adult, you know. They're, they're going to become that family and not be distracted by the desires to have more family or to have more companionship, another spouse. So he's fighting this, uh, maybe Maybe they had an influx of widows because they were helping widows and they had some younger widows who were causing some problems. And now he's saying, I think, I think, I think it would be better for those widows, those younger widows, to remarry. He, uh, the wordings that he uses in there, uh, it's not a hard, fast rule that he's saying. He suggests, he wishes, depending on the translation that you're reading, uh, that these women, these younger widows, would remarry and have kids and be the family in the design that God had designed. Which leads us to that third issue, continuing with the young widows of getting married. Again, I think Paul is addressing something in there uh, in the way the, uh, the image of the church family that he advises, he wishes, he suggests younger women get uh, married again. And I think some of this, uh, with reading and other, other readings that I was uh, studying, some of this could be from Paul wondering what the image of the church was like in the community around him, um, whether it, uh, the people outside the church would consider it uh, foolish or what they would think about a, young, a lot of younger widows just sitting there not being 
a productive cer certain point in society of having children, of having a husband, of, of being that design that so much of the world around them was already functioning in. We don't know. These are just things to think about as we kind of go through this chapter about widows and how we ought to take care of them, about the church and the family and how we ought to function together. So as we wrap up this section with the urging of Paul to care for each other, I just want to extend that past widows, past that father figure, mother figure, uh, brother or sister figure. I want us really to think about that passage from Acts that says that they gathered every single day together. They went to church together, of course. They had meals together. They sold possessions. They provided for each other. They comforted each other. Now, I want to celebrate part of this and say, I think uh, in the five Nazarene churches I've worked in, not one of them has done it better than what I've seen here. And it's amazing how quickly you realize when you start attending this church that it is a family. But all the more, all the more, we know this is a family. But the vast majority of Lewiston doesn't. The vast majority of Clarkston doesn't. You know, we are a well-kept secret. And I think that needs to change. As we think about our life groups, you know, we've been uh, kind of stretching out our life groups and adding some more. Uh, these are the model of what I've been talking about here. Uh, going beyond a Sunday and a Wednesday night and meeting at another time or maybe two other times and getting to the point where it is a family beyond our blood, immediate family. And getting to the point where that life group is life spent together. They know everything that's going on in our family. They know how to pray for us. They know how to support us. They know when our medical appointments are. They know everything that's going on in our life because we just share everything. We share life together the way God, I think, really intended it to be. To challenge you to move beyond just the Sunday, Wednesday lifestyle, if you're not part of a life group, or if you are, and it's still, uh, that's three days a week, maybe four. That's amazing. But how much of yourself, I know that not everybody is like me. I'm an open book, and, and my wife would tell you I share way too much. But how much are they family? Are we still keeping, I mean, because, man, we are, in the United States, we are really good at being independent and private. And uh, pulling into our driveway on a work night and either going into the garage and shutting the door or going into the house and shutting the door and just shutting the world out. How much? How much are we extending our familyness? not just on Sundays and Wednesdays and life group days, but every day, and not just to the people within our church, but our neighbors. I challenge you, if you've lived in a, your place that you live longer than a year and you still don't know everybody on your street by name, to get out and know everybody on your street by name. To pray for them, to get involved as much as they would let you, to get involved in their life. 
We're called to care for others in our big, diverse family. And we do that exceptionally well here. But to ponder the question, how do we join together the family life of our church and our life groups, that family, with the responsibilities of our own immediate family, the responsibilities and the tension and the difficulties of our own immediate family. We're called to care for others in our big, diverse family. And I think we could do that through our actions, but also by leaving a legacy of love and care passed down to our kids and those that we call our kids, our brothers and sisters that are our blood brothers and sisters, and those who we call brother and sister because they just fit that role. I think we do that as mothers and fathers, not to our own kids, just them, but to every kid in this church. I think we do that as grandparents to every person in this church. Psalm 78, I'm just going to leave you with this verse. Psalm 78, 5-7 says, For he issued his loss to Jacob, He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children so that each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Generation after generation after generation knowing Jesus. It only happens when there's a legacy that's passed down. Some of you who've been long attenders here, you know the people who have gone before and the legacy they have left as pillars in this church. My invitation to each one of us is to be one of those pillars. Not for our own glory, but for God's glory. So that generation after generation of people who walk through these doors, no matter how many times they do, know that they are loved and that they're part of a family. So that generation after generation, long after we're all gone, know what it means to be part of the family of God. Treating our elders as our fathers and mothers, treating each other as sisters and brothers. Paul teaching Timothy and each of us to care for our family and leave a legacy of what it means to be a follower of Christ and part of God's great big family for his glory, not ours. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this amazing day you blessed us with, for the worship, singing that we've done, for the word that you've given us, and the subject of widows, God, and the the family within the church. We just thank you for these words written in Scripture. We pray, God, as we are digesting them, as we're talking about maybe some in-between-the-lines things, some of our deductions and, and assumptions about what it must have been like, not having all the information. God, we just pray your Holy Spirit would keep with us as we leave this place today. That, God, you would just call us to your word, maybe back to this passage, that we might learn more from you, that our truth might conform to your truth, that we would be changed, transformed into the image of Jesus so that this whole community around us would know about your amazing family, your amazing love, your amazing mercy and forgiveness so that every person we come into contact with would know Jesus. 
That's our goal, God. So we pray that you would give us all the strength and wisdom we need for that as we walk out the doors into the big wide world this week. Would you give us uh, courage to just be the hands and feet of Jesus to our neighbors, people that we don't know? God, would you give us a desire to increase your family and to glorify you every step of the way? We love you, God. We thank you for loving us so much, for sending your son to die for us, for giving us this amazing family. And we bless you as we continue to worship you in song. We praise you, God, for you are worthy of our praise. You alone, Jesus, high and lifted up, our King of Kings. May you hear our hearts as we sing out this service and praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the First Mass Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.